Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the Nature podcast is an assignment smugly turned in two weeks ahead of the deadline, then Backchat is doing your homework on the bus on the way to school. Yes, Backchat's back. And listeners, if you're new to the show, it's a bit different to the regular Nature podcast and is more of a personal take on the latest stories from our team of reporters and editors. In today's roundtable discussion, we'll be crunching the numbers and looking at data journalism, finding out the best way to squeeze a science story into a single sentence, and learning how CRISPR gene editing is editing stock market prices. I'm Benjamin Thompson, and joining me on today's show are Heidi Ledford. Hi, I'm Heidi Ledford. I'm a reporter with Nature. Richard Van Norden. Hello, I'm Richard Van Norden, and I edit Nature's Features. And making her Backchat debut, it's Flora Graham. Hi, I'm Flora Graham, and I'm editor of Nature Briefing. Coming up in the show, we'll be talking about the results of a Nature survey on lab health. What did it reveal about research groups around the world? And when we're deluged with data, how do we pick out what's important for a story? We'll also be looking at email briefings. Are they having a golden age? What makes a good one? And how much can you compress a story before it loses all meaning? Finally, seemingly rather technical research findings are having sizable waves in the stock market. What's going on? Firstly then, let's talk about lab health. And I must say that I've been rather lucky in my career and have worked in some very supportive research environments. But that's not necessarily the case for everyone. And it can be difficult to speak up about it. Richard, uh, I know this is something that you've been looking into. Yes. Yeah, so for quite a few months, we've been trying to find out what do scientists around the world think is going on when it comes to the working environment of their lab. And this was a classic setup, in my view, uh, and in the view of Monia Baker, who led a lot of this work from our San Francisco office, to survey a lot of scientists and find out what's going on. Uh, so we uh, ended up with survey responses from more than 3,000 scientists to figure out what's happening in labs. And uh, the major thing that we found is that the people who run the labs, the PIs or principal investigators, have a much rosier picture of the dynamics in their research groups than the staff members who are working in the trenches under them. Yeah, and that's what maybe struck me is this kind of dissonance then. Uh, the people at the top think that everything is pretty rosy, but those a bit further down, maybe not so much. And this wasn't just, um, hey, things are going great. Things are not going so great. It was factual things. So we asked the PIs, well, how often do you consistently check the raw data of your research group? And more than 90% of them said, yep. We asked the non-PIs, just over half. 
So these are disagreements on factual matters, not just uh, perceptions of how wonderful you feel this morning. Well, that's something that rather sort of stuck out to me, Richard, as well, is, is that this is based on, you know, anonymous survey results. And uh, I don't know about the, the three of you, but I think we live in a world where things can often be one star terrible or five star amazing. So does that then maybe introduce some bias into this sort of research then? Like if you're having a bad day, you know, you'll say things are bad or and if you're having a good, good day, things are the best. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely does. And also, um, we're sending out emails to hundreds of thousands of people. We're not going to hear from everyone. The people we're going to hear from are going to be perhaps the people that have a, a, an axe to grind. Um, so I think all that we can do is mitigate against that by uh, reaching as wide a sample as possible, usually offering some kind of incentive for doing the survey, and making sure that our questions have a factual basis to them and aren't just about opinions. But we still find that people answer the survey in very surprising ways. We did test this survey extensively with people beforehand, and we asked people to describe their lab, and then we said, uh, how much does the atmosphere in your lab seriously hinder your ability to produce good quality research? Because there's been research into how people feel about their labs, and sometimes people do feel negative. But it's not actually clear that this means that this hinders the lab's research. Um, so we were trying to link the two together. Unfortunately, we failed miserably because <laughs> some respondents said, my lab culture is great. It's friendly. It's collaborative. But lab culture seriously hinders our ability to do good quality research. Hmm. So I then emailed nearly 100 people to follow up, find out what was going on. And many people either misread the question or thought that we were asking, in general, how important is lab culture for hindering research? Very important, very important. So having realized this, we decided to completely discard that question in our analysis, which you know, limited what we could say. So you have to put in a lot of work for these kinds of surveys. And I am going to be uh, a real survey snob here and say that when I read these surveys in newspapers, we at Nature usually instantly find three or four problems before we've got past the second paragraph. So we're trying really hard to make sure that we are very honest about the limitations of these surveys and what they can and can't tell you. Do you, uh, do you consult with I don't know, social scientists, can you, you know, get a few to just look over the questions or say, oh, be sure to do this or that? Yeah, absolutely. So for this lab survey one, we consulted with Brian Marsonson, um, among others. Who, he's a, he studies research integrity, and they went over our survey with a fine tooth comb, uh, and we tested it on 10 to 20 scientists. Well, let's zoom out a little bit then and look at data journalism as a bit more of a whole. Um, to my mind, it seems to be becoming a lot more prevalent. Uh, is it? And if so, why? I mean, is it access to more tools, more data, you know, and so on? Yes. Uh, well, I think there's always been data journalism going back hundreds and hundreds of years and just computers and the internet and the development of tools that make it easy for even journalists to do <laughs> analyses on large data sets is why we're seeing more and more of it. There's also um, not so much hype, but... Um, it takes a lot of resources to do it well, and um, news organizations are undoubtedly you know, keen to highlight when they've poured a lot of effort into doing something like this. And so it's not that they're hyping it, but that they are um, sort of parading it, I think, or saying, look, this is its own kind of journalism. But it's always been done, as anyone who watched the movie Spotlight will know. It didn't take uh, Python and R and modern accoutrements of coding to land that story. I think that it's just becoming an easier and easier for novices to crunch through huge data sets. 
But I think that almost no data journalism stories were landed by someone unloading a data set without knowing what was in it, searching through and discovering an amazing result. Almost all of these stories come from old-fashioned work where a source will tell you that something's going on, you'll report that story, maybe they'll point you to a data set, and then you'll find the evidence in there. But it's almost impossible to find a data journalism story by just looking through a data set without any idea of, of what you were going to find. Well, let's move on to our second topic of discussion then, everyone. And I'd like to talk about emails and specifically daily briefing emails. Now, Flora, you're the senior editor of Nature's Briefing, which wraps up the science news and opinions of the day. So my first question is to you. uh, What is it about them that that makes them good at what they are? I think the real benefit of uh, a briefing is that hopefully it comes from someone you really trust. So you're getting that person or that editorial team's best judgment of what you really need to know. Of course, we're all undergoing this kind of information tsunami all the time. And there was a time where we thought, oh, well, my Facebook feed will do it for me or my Twitter feed. But even then, we started to feel like really we're just in a bubble of kind of randomly appearing information. And people, I think, have really started to come back to the point where they want an expert to say, look, I've read all the stuff and I can tell you that what's great and what you really need to know. I mean, one of the key things for this, and I think you mentioned it there, is, is you're almost compressing it down, right? You're, you're, you're giving that kind of concentrated burst of information. I mean, how, how does one go about doing that without giving away the punchline? Like, I mean, if you want someone to read the, the full article, but you tell them what the full article is in a sentence, I mean, how, how do you square that circle? Well, different newsletters have different purposes. Some are definitely to drive people to read the full article. Now, I'm kind of lucky as the editor of Nature Briefing that I don't need to have to worry about that. What I'm trying to do is give people, hopefully, all the information they need. I want them to be able to go into their next meeting or meet their next colleague or go down the pub and be able to have to hand the salient facts about that news story. How many words do you have to, to summarize the whole gist of the story? Well, there's no set limit, but actually it is surprising. I would generally keep it down around 60 to 80 words. Mm. I mean, it just goes to show how quickly you can get information across when yeah. you genuinely are trying to summarize things in, in as effective way as possible. I mean, how, how on earth does one go about taking a 10,000 word feature and getting it down into those 60 words. I mean, it just seems like a massive headache. Well, I should say that I tend to summarize fully news stories. So just like a headline can kind of give you the gist, I go a little bit further. But when it comes to those super long reads, those amazing multimedia features, maybe the really opinionated blog posts, I definitely do try to set them up and let the reader click through. Because, of course, if you're talking about a long personal story, of course, you can't wrap that up simply by reporting just the facts and let's move on to the next thing. Um, But when it comes to uh, news and briefs, I think that's why these email summaries are really coming back, because people just don't want to visit every website that they're interested in. I can give them those signposts. And throwing it open then to the rest of the panel, obviously, Richard, you're involved in editing regular stories, if I use those air quotes. And Heidi, you're, of course, involved in writing them. I mean, when I started out, I was very much of the opinion like, this isn't just the best thing I've ever written. This is the best thing I've ever read when I finished an article. And very quickly, that gets beaten out of you, right? Like when it comes back with covered in track changes and red pen and what have you. Um, But Heidi, what about you? When you filed a story, what tends to come back? What comes back, it varies a lot from story to story. I have to say, I don't typically think this is the best thing I've ever read. I think this is the worst thing I've ever read. This is awful, but I'm out of time and I've got to hand it in. So then I, I hand it in. 
Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it varies a lot depending on the story and how complicated it was and how I interpreted it and how Richard, for example, might interpret it. But when it comes to writing short, I guess, which is what poor Flora really has to do a lot of, I found that very difficult at first. When we, we write these research highlights, which are you know, 120, 130 word summaries of papers. And I remember when I first started at Nature, I mean, every first draft I wrote was 250 words or 300. And it was just agony for me to cut it down. And now, I don't know, 10, 12 years years into this, I can't write them anything but 120 and 130 words. So I think you just you learn to find the key bits of information and just focus on those. Just to give away some yeah editorial secrets. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> once you've edited a lot, you just think of a story in terms of the number of words it will be. So someone says, oh, this has happened. And you think, okay, so is that a 60-word nib? Or is that a 600-word story? Or is that a 1,500-worder? Or is that, are we talking 3,000 words for this? And you just get an instinct for what is a meaty story and what is a uh, canapé of a story. And you just know what can be told to its natural length. Yeah, for me, it's like, is this a one-sentence story, a three-sentence <laughs> story? Or sometimes, I mean, literally, if it's like neutron stars have revealed gravitational waves, da, 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 and I'm like, five sentences, maybe even a bullet point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the reporter's perspective on what Richard just said is that I think all my stories deserve at least twice as many words as the editor thinks that it deserves. <laughs> and it's often painful for me to, to, you know, I often write them a little bit over and then I have to cut it down before I hand it to the editor or else they get very cranky. And then sometimes what happens, though, is that if it's going into print, you'll write it a certain length and then you'll find out at the end, oh, we have a couple lines we can add back. And a lot of times I'll look at the story and I'll, that I agonized over every cut and I'll think, no, actually, it's good. It's good the length it is. That is one of the truest things of journalism is the first edit is so painful and every word is precious. And then you have to take that deep breath and say, oh, thank goodness that all came out at the end. It ended up so much better. But I also find that um, often there's a disagreement on what's the most important point. And that's something that I really struggle with in the briefing is for these stories, I really have to choose. Of course, there's all kinds of different angles. Is it the fact that this is a new discovery? Is it the fact that it's going to have a knock-on effect on research? Is it the fact that it's going to have a day-to-day -day effect on people's lives? So there's always the, the challenge of picking that particular angle that I feel is the absolute most important angle. Okay, then, well, it's time to move on to our final story. And uh, I'd like to talk about something that came to our attention a couple of weeks back with a bunch of headlines talking about CRISPR, cancer and stock prices. Heidi, before we start, maybe you can tell us what CRISPR is. CRISPR is uh, a method that many research labs are using to make targeted changes to the genome. Um, but in addition to research labs, there are also several companies out there who are hoping to design gene therapies, essentially, that would one day be used to treat genetic diseases as well. Hmm. And, uh, and what's the story that's come up in the, in the last couple of weeks? So a couple of papers came out in Nature Medicine from two groups um, who were trying to use CRISPR in particular cell lines. And they found that the process was really inefficient for the change they were trying to make. Um, and so they looked a little more deeply and they found that if you mutated um, a gene encoding a protein called P53, you could get a higher efficiency of this gene editing. And that sounds great because now you have a way to get this higher efficiency, but actually it's terrible because you don't want mutations in P53 if you're trying to design a therapy and you're going to put those cells back into a patient because mutations in P53 are very strongly associated with developing cancer. And so these, these papers have come out then and they've had a bit of a knock-on effect. 
Yeah, that's right. So there was a lot of media coverage right after the papers came out, a lot of headlines saying CRISPR may cause cancer, CRISPR could cause cancer, and so forth. Uh, I didn't see any that said CRISPR will cause cancer, but still, you know, the implication was pretty clear. So that spooked a number of investors, and we saw stock prices in some of these uh, companies that are trying to develop therapies drop. And from what I understand, this isn't actually the first time this has happened. Not at all. So I would say over the past year or so, it's happened a number of times. There was a a paper that came out last year in Nature Methods um, that was later retracted. But the paper said that uh, this group had found many off-target effects of of using CRISPR, so many unwanted genetic changes, and that caused stock prices to to drop as well. There was another paper uh, or a couple of papers earlier this year that talked about how many people have uh, pre-existing antibodies against some of the components of CRISPR, which may then make some sort of gene therapy based on CRISPR ineffective in those people. Uh, that also made stock prices bottom out for a while. But why CRISPR, though? If this is happening repeatedly, what is it about this technology that is maybe having such a sort of roller coaster effect? It's a number of things. I think it's there's so much interest in this technology, and it is so unproven when it comes to you know gene therapy and human therapies and so forth. And yet these companies are out there; they have a heavy level of investment. They have quite a bit of money in them. Um, so it's. You know, everyone, I think, kind of recognizes that this is hyped. It has been hyped. It has a lot of promise. It is a very interesting technology. It has a lot of useful um, applications, but it has been overhyped. And so everybody's kind of waiting for that bubble to burst, I think. So when, you know, something comes along and, oh, there's a potential problem with this, it gets a lot of attention. And then that attention spooks some of the investors and, and they drop the stock. Now, the, the stock... If you look at it over time, though, is doing fine. So you get these dips, and then typically it comes back. In some cases, it goes higher and so forth. So Heidi, I remember in news meetings, you looking at this stuff and sort of sighing as if you're like, oh, here we go again. And we didn't cover the latest findings. So how do you react to this as a science journalist when you see sensational headlines and stocks plunging on not that exciting papers? I definitely have a level of fatigue, I think, with the cycle. And I do, in fact, we were talking the other day, I do feel a bit of regret for not covering the the Nature Medicine papers that just came out. And they were perfectly fine papers. You know, they point out a perfectly legitimate issue that companies should be looking at, researchers should be looking at. It's just that I would have thought they would have been looking at that anyway. I think what happened for me is that I felt like we would end up covering it the same way that we covered the papers that talked about pre-existing antibodies, which was to do an explainer and to say, this result came out. Here's what it means. Here's what it doesn't mean. Here's why, you know, people should pay attention. Here's why people maybe shouldn't panic and, you know, that kind of thing. And I felt like, oh, we just did that for these other papers. And I don't want to do this every time a paper comes out and says there's this potential problem with this one potential application of CRISPR. So I, yeah. But in the end, you know, there's so much reader interest that maybe I should have done it. Well, final question from me then. Um, Heidi, you talked about you know headlines earlier and their implications, which perhaps links back a little bit to our previous conversation about compressing the news. I mean, there's even less words, I suppose, in a headline. Where does the responsibility lie to try and get that nuance in there? I mean, can you even do it at all? Uh, is it more just about getting eyeballs on an article itself? Well, that's one of the great questions of modern journalism. I mean, of course, we all do our best to write factually accurate and compelling headlines. It's a constant challenge and a constant balancing act. I think at Nature, we have the benefit that our readers are looking for extremely accurate, um, precise, detailed 
um, scientifically valid coverage. Not every outlet has that benefit. If you're a science reporter for a daily and a, you might have to argue with the editor that you deserve any space at all for that type of coverage. Well, the only thing you have to offer is of, that it's of interest to your readers. So you have to present it to your readers in a way that they find compelling. I think that's very valid. I mean, it's always dealt with as a negative, but actually, uh, at the same time, I think uh, m many of us are in agreement that people need to read about science and they need to, it needs to be on par with the latest reality show contestant to a certain extent. So if we're not getting it out there in a way that people find interesting, then the whole enterprise is fairly pointless. Well, there we have it. Many thanks to my guests, Flora Graham, Heidi Ledford and Richard Van Norden for joining me here today. You can read their work and more stories from the world of science over at nature.com slash news. And you can sign up for the Nature Briefing at nature.com slash briefing. If you want to get in contact with us, you can reach us on Twitter at Nature Podcast or on email. We are podcast at nature.com. This has been Backchat. I've been Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. See you all next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.